0: But this morning we're in Psalm 10. An opening question for you this morning. How did you experience wickedness this week? Perhaps that's a startling question for you. Perhaps you think of all the news that came into your newsfeed. Um, perhaps you think about feeling like you were racially profiled, walking into a store or getting pulled over. Maybe it was someone who was close to you that just did you dirty. How did you experience wickedness? this week. Did you experience it in yourself? These are hard questions to think about, but important questions to think about. This morning I've entitled the sermon, Questions Without Answers. Yes, that was a line in one of the songs we sang. But similar to last week we will get into some stuff and you might feel at the end like we didn't really come out of it i hope in some way you will but that's part of the reason for lament is to feel the weightiness of a broken world and of being broken people and so sometimes we have questions without answers but this morning as we get into Psalm 10, we are going to look specifically at the reality of wickedness. In a sinful world, we don't typically experience wickedness anonymously. Wickedness usually has a face. Evil, usually in our experience, has a name. Because wickedness and evil are activated. So this morning we humbly approach another psalm, Psalm 10. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, this psalm is, for God's people to sing. To sing perhaps with tear-stained faces, quivering lips, scarred memories, groaning hearts, and hopefully clear-eyed faith. Psalm 10 is the second half of a Hebrew acrostic poem. An acrostic poem is, you know, where it goes like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, except those aren't the Hebrew letters. It's the second half of an acrostic poem, so it seems to be connected, perhaps, to Psalm 9. Psalm 9 was written by David. Maybe Psalm 10 was as well, or perhaps later when they were arranged, those who were arranging them put them together for one to complete the other acrostic, or maybe there was a scribe that was inspired to complete David's half of the acrostic. Regardless, you might hear me say David's name this morning. It's not because we know for sure it was David, but I think it's helpful to think about David writing this psalm. Psalm 9 largely rejoices in God's sovereign presence and power over Israel's national enemies. Well, David was king, and so he was their representative in leading them in that way. He was the one leading their armies And God had powerfully worked, powerfully protected, and was victorious over Israel's national enemies, past, present, and future. Joey, when he read from Exodus earlier, that was the song of Moses after they crossed the Red Sea, and you could hear them imploring God, looking forward to God, separating their enemies in the same way that he had just separated the sea. So God had a track record of protection and victory and strength, his presence with them. Psalm 9 celebrates that. Psalm 10 recedes. Psalm 10 recedes back from the big national stage to the stages of villages in Israel, places with rich and powerful people, places with poor and vulnerable people, places where the people of God lived together. But in Psalm 10, we find that the enemies of God are within the gates. They're nearby. They're all part of the covenant people. And these wicked people have faces, they are known by names. And so the position of the psalmist here is a unique one, especially if it was David. David knew what it was like to be pursued, to be hunted by someone more powerful than him, Saul. Even during his kingship, his son Absalom had a coup d'etat and threw him out, and David himself had to flee. But David as king also felt the, the weight of responsibility to protect the poor and the helpless. his inability to do that 100% of the time. But in those villages, there was still wickedness happening. So he laments for his people. He laments over the wickedness and perhaps even laments as Joey will preach to us from Psalm 51 in August. Perhaps his own wickedness and consults his own heart as he remembers sleeping with another man's wife and then having that man murdered to cover up his sin, the powerful, oppressing, the powerless. And so the psalmist laments. Allow me to read Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit. And oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall. By his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten, and he has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. O Lord, we humble ourselves before your word. The one who you esteem is the one who is humble, and contrite and humbles himself or herself before your word. Would you teach us this morning? We ask, Lord Jesus. Amen. This psalm breaks down for the sake of this morning into two parts. A first half and a second half. The first half you could label simply as crying to God. Crying to God. It encapsulates verses 1 through 11. It begins in verse 1 with this questioning couplet. You're going to see this throughout our preaching through the Psalms, our couplets, they're poetic devices that are used by the psalmist for various reasons but they're meant to be linked together the first half of the couplet and the second half we see that here in verse one why O lord do you stand far away why do you hide yourself in times of trouble see as my introduction alluded to this psalm is about wickedness But what the psalmist is really concerned with is God's absence or apparent absence. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Furthermore, why does it seem that you hide yourself when we need you the most? It is these questions that drive the rest of the psalm. It is these questions that the psalmist is looking for some answers and is humbling himself before the Lord, his king, and asking in faith, God, it seems like you're not close to us. It seems like the wicked are prospering and you're not just away somewhere, but you have hidden yourself. Having asked these questions of the Lord, he moves on to describe the face of the wicked one in verses 2 through 7. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. There's a generality here about the wicked. The wicked. And the fact that within Israel, they were hotly pursuing the this defines the times of trouble that the psalmist just asked about that the wicked are being pursued or the wicked are doing the pursuing and it's a and it's an intentional hot pursuit they are arrogantly hunting and the poor are being snared in their schemes and the psalmist feels especially because he's He's feeling like God is absent. The only recourse that I have is to hope that somehow these wicked will be caught up in their own schemes. You know what it's like to see somebody else get caught up. We know what it's like when we get caught up. It's oftentimes in a lie. You shade the truth a little bit and then somebody asks another question or circumstances reveal things and all of a sudden you realize... I either own up to my lie or I got to lie some more. The psalmist is saying, I I don't have much more hope than to just hope that the wicked get caught in their own schemes, their own traps, instead of the poor getting caught in those traps. But note this, he, he moves from like this general description of the arrogant wicked pursuing the poor, and he moves close. He moves to a singularity of a wicked person. The rest of the pronouns in this section are all about one person. We'll call him the wicked man. This wicked man has a face, Verse 3, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the greedy, the one greedy for gain, curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And all his thoughts are, there is no God. So when you would look at this wicked man, his face would be a greedy face his face might have leering eyes his face betrays the fact that his heart is greedy for gain he says where it says the wicked does not seek him that could also be translated the wicked says he will not call to account. Further on by the second part of that verse, there is no God. So the wicked man has this prideful face that says, listen, I have impunity. God ain't going to touch me. He's not going to call me to account and I can do whatever I want. The psalmist, in a way, agrees. Verse 6. His ways prosper at all times. It's not just that he's greedy. He's getting what he's greedy for. God, your judgments are on high. Out of his sight. He has really no reason in the psalmist's view to say, I should fear the Lord. I should be concerned about his judgment. As for all of his foes, this wicked man, the psalmist says, he puffs at them. He's a strong man. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. If this is a game of Tug of war, nobody's moving me. I'm standing fast. Nobody's going to come up to me and smack me with judgment, either in heaven or on earth. I shall not be moved. Throughout all my generations, for me and my kids and their kids, I won't even have adversity because I'm strong. This is the face of the wicked. In verse 7 we get this final picture of his face. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. That's a full mouth. A mouth full of wickedness the word there for cursing is actually the Hebrew word for bless. But it's it's a, a, a euphemism for curse. David referred to Job's wife last week and how she told Job, curse God and die. The Hebrew of that actually says bless God and die. But the context showed She was telling Job, God's done all of this to us. He's taken away everything. Where is he, Job? And look at you, covered with scabs. Cutting yourself. Bless God and die. Why would these, why would this wicked man who has walked within the covenant people for so, well, for his life. He's probably gone to synagogue. Why would he do this to his fellow Hebrews? Don't know. The heart is wicked. Who can know it? Maybe there's a little glimpse of a hint that like Job's wife, God didn't seem to be living up to his end of the deal. Okay, I get it, God. You want me to follow your law. You want me to humble myself before you. But what's in it for me? I have desires, you know. You haven't met those desires, so... tried doing it myself. It was pretty good. I'm going to do it some more. I don't care who it hurts. You know what? In fact, I might hurt someone else just to get it. God, you haven't lived up to your end of the bargain, so all bets are off. I'm doing my own thing. And you haven't judged me yet. This is the face of pride, the face of the arrogant, wicked one. It would be bad enough, trouble enough, if this was just kind of like the posture of this wicked man. But his heart, his mind, his desires moves him from words to action. We see the hunt of the wicked one. Verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He draws the poor when he draws him into his net. The wicked man hides in the village to surprise the unsuspecting and the defenseless, the innocent. His eyes are watching in secret stealth, and he lurks, and yes, the psalmist says, and he lurks, he lurks and lurks some more like a lion, on the hunt to seize the poor. Opportunistic, yet premeditated. He was hiding for a reason. Who would he attack? We'll see. He overcomes the helpless. And the psalmist is saying, God, where are you? The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. Where are you? Where is your power? Save these people. Protect them. We were at Lincoln Park Zoo yesterday with Roberto and Sophia and the lions were out. And the lions had their eyes on us. Made us a little nervous. But the nervousness only goes so far because you trust the glass. The psalmist is saying the glass is broken. The poor are thrown in to the lion's cage. The village has, come, has become the arena. And God, where are you in the wickedness? And the wicked says in his heart, God is forgotten. He's hidden his face, he will never see it. Some of us know that wickedness has a face. Because we see that face or we see those faces in our news feeds or on our blocks or in our boardrooms. Some of us know that wickedness has a face because you feel like you can't forget that face. You've experienced wickedness at the hands of someone stronger than you, you were taken advantage of, you were abused, you couldn't flee, and you were crushed. God, where are you when rapes happen? Where are you when kids are molested? Where are you when lynchings happen? Where are you when school shootings or church shootings happen? Where are you when the poor and the powerless are crushed? Where are you when Eritrean believers are packed into shipping containers to sit locked in the East African sun? Where are you? Brothers and sisters, these are questions that we should ask. These are questions that those who lament ask. They are questions that the psalmist is crying out to God. And all of us need to know that wickedness has a face. And it's the face that we see in the mirror. In Romans 3.14, Paul quotes Psalm 10.7 in his argument that all of us are wicked. Paul writes, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their mouth is full of supposed blessings or, God, you didn't live up to your end of the deal, so I'm going to indulge indulge my greed, my desires. See, we carry in our bodies the boastful, God-cursing, bitterly biting tongue, the leering eyes, the prideful face, yes Christian, even as a Christian, our flesh still has these tendencies. And all of us need to remember that wickedness has a face and a name the name of satan Jesus himself said that satan is the father of lies and that he came satan to steal kill and destroy The author of Hebrews says that Satan ensnares and enslaves people in the fear of death. And Peter tells us that he lurks, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. With the wicked reality of out there and in here and Satan. This can lead us to ask these questions. Why do you hide yourself? God, why are you seemingly absent in the times of trouble? in the times of wickedness. This could be said in another way. How could you, a good God, allow evil and suffering? This is a question that most of us struggle with. At one time or another, especially in the times of trouble. Note here that in 11, as the wicked man says God has hidden his face, that is very much like what the psalmist said in verse 1. You've hidden yourself. So we have a pious heart, a faithful heart saying, God, you've hidden yourself. And we've got a wicked heart saying, God, you've hidden yourself. And so it brings us to this question, God, if you're good, how does this work? Why? I'd refer you to Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Chapter 2 is helpful chapter 2 entitled how could a good God allow suffering he quotes from a man named Rob Rob says this isn't a philosophical issue to me this is personal I won't believe in a God who allows suffering even if he she or it exists maybe God exists maybe not but if he does he can't be trusted That might be where you're sitting this morning. I have endured the wickedness of others, and or also endured the wickedness of my own heart. I couldn't escape that. And I feel like I can't escape this. And so it makes me ask this question, God, where are you? It's not a philosophical question. It's a God, where are you question. Are you actually good? And if you are good, Why haven't you put an end to this? Why didn't you protect me then? Can I trust you? To that question of God's existence, philosopher Alvin Plantinga wrote this, Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular, godless way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, and it's not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. If there was not incredible goodness... We would not have the reason to be able to say, there is incredible wickedness. Wickedness would be undefined without goodness. That's good, but maybe it doesn't quite get us to the but why question. Planting it continues. If you look into your pup tent, think a small tent when you're camping. If you look into your pup tent, pup tent for a St. Bernard and you don't see one, it is reasonable to assume that there's no St. Bernard in your tent. But if you look into your pup tent for a noceum, an extremely small insect with a bite that is out of all proportion to its size and you don't see a noceum it is not reasonable to assume that they are not there because after all no one can see them many assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil they would absolutely be accessible to our minds more like saint bernards than like noceums but why should that be the case keller further explains saying this tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil that's basically the question if god is good how could there be evil he's saying tucked within that question is a hidden premise. Something that is assumed within the question. Namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then we think. There can't be any. If I can't think of it, then there must not be one. This is blind faith of a high order. Because it's blind faith in our own limited minds. Our own supposed intellect. Our own clear reasoning. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why does God allow evil and suffering? Keller says, We may not know what the answer is. Hear me on that. We may not know what the answer is, what the no is. But we know what it is not. We know it is not... that it can't be that God, sorry, I said that wrong. We know that it is not that he doesn't love us. We know that it is not that he is actually detached and unconcerned, absent from us and careless about our condition. Why can we know these things? Because he took evil and suffering on himself. Showing his love, the full extent of his love, by suffering oppression, poverty, and injustice. See, the Christian God came to earth. His name was Jesus Christ. He put himself on the hook of human suffering. Jesus bore the endless exclusion from God that the human race merited. You and I should be crying out for all of eternity, God, where are you? Because we have left him. Yet Jesus went to the cross and cried out, God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? God, where are you? Furthermore, the wickedness, the oppression, the injustice that he endured was from people with faces. And let's be clear, if we were there, we would have done the same apart from God's grace, we would have crucified Christ too. And yet, God came to earth, and what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Experiencing injustice and wickedness and evil like none of us ever will. He cried out to God, Father, forgive them. The psalmist here is saying, why do you hide yourself? That's a legitimate question for him to ask. And it's a legitimate question for us to ask in those times of trouble when wickedness seems overwhelming in us and outside of us and in our world. But this side of the cross, we can't just ask it willy-nilly because we can look at the cross and we can realize that the hidden God was revealed. The psalmist did not see God. We have. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, hear this, the God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The wickedness can seem right up in your face, but that does not change Jesus' face and the face that wept over Jerusalem. And the mouth that cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the mouth that said, Father, why have you hidden yourself from me? Jesus experienced all of that wickedness for the sake of wicked men, women, and children like us. He experienced it on purpose. We may not know the answers to our questions in why is God allowing this? Where is he right now in this time of trouble? But we do know this answer that God is not eternally hidden. He is now eternally revealed in Jesus. What did Jesus tell his friends about their place in a wicked world? He said this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, take heart, I have overcome the world. In a world of wicked faces, take heart and look to Jesus Christ who has overcome the wicked, who has overcome the world. The wicked faces are close, but Christ is closer than He appears for all those who are in Christ, who belong to him. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so the question, God, where are you? The still, small, quiet voice of his spirit says, I'm right here. And so, to finish the last part of this psalm, the second half, the first one was crying to God. The second is calling on Christ. I want us to look at it through the cross. To even use it, if you are someone who is experiencing the wickedness within or the wickedness without, to be able to this week, Pray this psalm. Verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. This was Moses' battle cry in the book of Numbers. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant went out, the Ark of God's presence, Moses would cry, Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. You are a God of war vanquish your enemies have your way with the wicked and so this couplet here why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart you will not call to account God would you help them understand make them understand there will be an account there will be a day when every single injustice will be accounted for how do we know that because verse 14 but you do see For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the father of the helpless. Jesus sees and notes every injustice. God keeps receipts. He helps the the helpless and the fatherless. This is the face of our present one. That's why Jesus instructed his disciples go ahead and pray, deliver us from evil. Acknowledging the evil of the world and acknowledging that his disciples were going to be walking through it and experiencing it. To pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. But you still might say, but Andy, I appreciate that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me and that Jesus is with me through his spirit. But what about when I still feel like he's hiding? Why do I feel that way? Feelings are tricky things. I can't tell you why you felt that way. Tuesday, the 4th of July, was a tricky day for me. My family can attest to it. I was out of sorts all day. I don't know why. Some of you who saw me at Fourth of July, you might have been wondering, what's up with him? I tried to put on a good face. I did love being there. But there was something going in on inside of me that I don't know the recipe for. I, I, can't, I can't produce the ratio for what was going on inside of me that was making me feel that way, the way I was feeling. I told my mom the next day when she asked, ironically, about what was troubling me, I said, I think it's a combination of spiritual, emotional, and physical weariness. That's my best guess. We can't always discern our feelings or set them up in some sort of spiritually scientific experiment. So while I can't tell you why you sometimes feel like he's not there I can tell you that he is If you don't know Christ he is near to the brokenhearted Call on him Simply call on him Don't 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 remain in your wickedness Don't somehow feel your way out of it. Call on Jesus. For those of us who know Christ, C.S. Lewis may give us a little bit of a help here. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, you have Uncle Screwtape, a chief demon, talking to his nephew and protege, Wormwood. And he says this, he, God, but he won't say God's name, he will set them off, Christians, with communications of his presence. They're going to feel like he's with them, which, though faint, seem great to them. With emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation, these are in the early days of their faith, perhaps. But he never allows this state of their faith, the state of affairs, to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws. If not in fact, it's not that he actually withdraws, is actually what he's saying. It's not in fact that he withdraws, at least from their conscious experience, from their feelings. He withdraws, all those supports and incentives that he was supporting them with. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, That it is growing, the creature is growing into the sort of creature, the sort of person, the sort of new creation, the sort of son, the sort of daughter that our father, I'm paraphrasing now, wants us to be. As a father who wants his son to walk and demonstrates how to walk and holds them while they walk and gives the coffee table so that he can cruise around the coffee table, when those first steps happen, the father will be holding his son, guiding his daughter. But if that son or daughter will ever walk, will ever run, the father needs to step back. This is the beauty of having a father that loves us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows when we need it. Wickedness never happens willy-nilly or by chance. He knows. He loves. He is present. And so we lament and we rejoice. Because we long for more of christ we long to see him face to face we long for all these wrongs to be put right and we also rejoice that he is with us in the valley keller finishes his book or his chapter on suffering by saying this and with this i conclude too At the end of The Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganges discovers Gandalf was not dead. And he asks, Does this mean that everything sad is going to come untrue? The Christian answer is yes, yes, yes. This, the resurrection, is the ultimate defeat of evil and suffering. It will not only be ended, but so radically vanquished that what has happened will only serve to make our future life and joy infinitely greater. And I need to finish reading the Psalm, because I didn't yet. But it says what I just said. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account, till you find none that's coming on that day the Lord is is forever is king forever and ever that is true now that will be even more true in our experience that day the nations perish from his land oh Lord you hear the desire of the afflicted today and that day they will no longer be afflicted you will strengthen their heart you do that today you incline your ear to our prayers today you will do so even more when we are with you to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who has a face of wickedness who is only of the earth and is not of eternity may strike terror no more. God, we long for that day. And we ask that we'd be confident in your presence even as we lament and long all the more. Oh God, by your grace, would you give salvation to hearts that are not saved yet. Rescue them from the pit of their own wickedness. And Lord, for those of us who humbly say thank you for rescuing us, would you give us more grace, fill us with your Holy Spirit, help us to walk in the flesh, help us to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh, that we would love one another well and look to your face, Jesus Christ.